Rick, why don't we start off with what you just talked about while it's fresh in everyone's mind. Um, why don't we start with this? What's the difference between a trial and God's discipline? Yeah. I, I find people, when they're suffering in some way, particularly when something dramatic has happened, they will ask, is God chastising me? Uh, the biblical answer to that is, if he is, you know why. <laughs> Chastisement is for a intentional disobedience. It's unrepentant sin that is on your radar screen and you're not willing to be at least struggling with it. You're not yielding that up to the Lord. And so chastisement comes. When you look in the letters of Revelation, for instance, where the doors are doing, uh, threatening the churches there, these are very flagrant matters, frankly, that are, he warns them. And then if they don't respond to the warning, then he will respond to chastisement. That happens. Let me give you some advice. If you are being chastised for some unrepented sin, I counsel you to repent. Uh, but probably most of our trials are not going to be that way. They're going to be providences that are hard for us. And uh, we often will not know exactly why, but biblically we can think through it principally. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7 that trials come to strengthen our faith and to prove our faith, to purify our faith. And, and that is a general reality. We will all suffer trials because that is how the, it, the metaphor is that of refining gold. You heat it really hot, and then you throw it into cold water, then you scrape off the dross, then you heat it again, and you put it in cold water, you scrape off the dross, and the refiner know he's done when he can see his, he see his own reflection in the metal. And God will be trying us all of our lives until he can see his reflection in our life. So that will happen. The other thing that's generally true is that we will have opportunities to glorify him. You think of John 9, the man who was born blind, and the disciples said, why was this man born blind? Because of his sin or his parents. Notice that tendency to think that there's punishment when often there's not. And Jesus said, neither, but so I could be glorified by healing him. Um, and so we should be thinking about those things. Am I being, is there something I really need to be repenting of and bringing to the Lord and asking his grace to turn away from? Uh, and I'm aware of it. Um, how does the Lord want to strengthen my faith and how is this an opportunity to glorify him? Those are some of the general categories we'll work through on them. Okay, that's helpful. The BT, let me ask you this. It's related to Rick's message, but um, something that wasn't, uh, wasn't um, talked about. It seems like people seem so surprised when they don't know why God is doing a certain thing, why he's bringing a certain trial uh, into their lives. It seems like they assume they should be able to know what God is up to. What do you say to someone when they come to you um, shocked that they can't figure out why God would do this right now? Uh, I'd say a number of things. Uh, I don't necessarily know in any infinite detail why he's doing these things as well, apart from what he tells us in his word, right, which we can bank on and which is enough, right? So whether he is purifying our faith whether he is uh, in some way setting us up uh, to, to give to him greater glory, um, whether it's a part of his own sanctifying work uh, in, in our lives or, or all of the above and more, um, I would just sort of want to take him to the scripture. I think the other thing I would want to say is um, there's a conceit in that assumption in there that um, even if God were to tell us, we could understand it. 
And, there, and there's the, you know, I mean, I mean, think about the way the Lord has moved you from A to D or E, right? It, it, it chances are, if you're like me, I, I mean, I've, I've, nothing I've planned to be sort of effective has ever been effective, even if it went according to plan. Um, the stuff that it seems that the Lord has done that's been lasting in my life have been things that he surprised me with. Uh, he, he moved me in places and set me up, and um, only later in retrospect could I see um, tracings of his hands. Um, and and I, I, think that's, I think that's true. And I think it's true in part because we're creatures and not the creator. And there's something in that assumption that fails to remember our creaturehood and fails to embrace the limitations of our creaturehood that, that maybe even bucks against that. Um, and, and doesn't want to be contented in our knowledge of him. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's... And that's and, and I think the, 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 the secret to contentment in that case is a little bit counterintuitive. It, it is the embracing of our creaturehood, yeah. right? And letting God be God and let us live under him as creatures um, and trusting the secret things to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29, and, and cherishing what he has revealed. And I think we'll find our souls help. So you're, you're saying... Uh, we assume he knows a little bit more than we do, or, or the, the distance is this big, and, and really it's miles and miles. Or, or even if it's apart. miles, if he would just take the time to tell us, right, we, right. we would comprehend it all. Right. And, and, you know, and, and in point of fact, if, if he told us one thing, it'd blow all our circuits. Right. You know, it's just, we'd just melt down, you know. And, um, he's infinite in wisdom. Yeah. He's working all things together for good i can't manage five things you know and he's he is he is without any effort upholding the universe by the word of his power without any effort he's comprehending the end from the beginning yeah he he is he is spanning time um and 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 is knowledgeable of every potentiality and every actuality and he's ordaining i'm not god not God, and it's good for me to acknowledge that, to say that joyfully, and let him be God, and uh, let me receive as the creature the, the, the nourishment he intends for me to have, which is, most, which is most detailed and most clear in his word. Yeah, And he knows when is the right time for us to be informed of his purposes. If you'd told me on the night of my conversion that I was going to be a minister, I'd have run out of the church. Mm-hmm. But really, I was not prepared to handle that. Mm-hmm. Did not want to be a minister. And so... Uh, the Lord knows when for us to know. Yeah, yeah, that's great. All right, Rick, how about this, um, this thing of God's sovereignty? You talked about it in your message. Distinguish for us the difference between God's sovereignty and fatalism and distinguish between God's sovereignty and him being the author of sin or causing sin. In three sentences or less. <laughs> we'll give you four, two each, two each. Uh, look, God is sovereign. If you possess the attributes of, of omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence, then everything is happening because you made it happen or you let it happen. I mean, the, the, the sovereignty of God is inherent to the attributes of deity. Um, and God's decree has ordained all that comes to pass. There is nothing outside of the decree of God, thank God. Um, and, uh, and the Bible reveals that. Uh, 
The smallest, again, Jesus says the smallest event you can imagine, a sparrow falling to the ground. It doesn't happen apart from the will of my Father. All things happen according to the counsel of his will. Now, why is that not fatalism? Well, the Bible fully embraces and teaches human responsibility and volition. Our choices are real. Now, people will say, if you believe God's sovereign in all things, then you believe that we don't make choices and we're not real. Well, I'm sorry, the Bible teaches both. And you say, you have to reconcile it. And I say, no, I don't have to reconcile it. Uh, and, and again, my creatureliness, right. uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, which Calvin summarizes saying, where God makes an end of teaching, let us make an end of learning. And the Bible yeah. plainly teaches that God is sovereign over all things for the purpose of his glory, and we are actually responsible, volitional people. Take the Lord Jesus. His life was not only predestined, it was largely prerecorded. Are we going to say he was a puppet? That he was not living out his will? And so it's a mystery of, uh, that God knows, but the Bible plainly, and, and that's what we do. We think God's thoughts after him. We're little children being taught our lessons by the Lord, and his word guides us into truth safely. And he is sovereign over all things. He must be. And I, I am a real person. I lead a real life that's happening. Now, how can I be fatalistic? Now, one theological way of getting at this is saying that means are also ordained together with ends. And I'm involved in the means. God wants my neighbor Jim to be converted on Thursday by means of my prayer on Wednesday. Well, my prayer is real, and it's the instrument of God's will. He's actually saved by my prayer. What if I don't pray? God has ordained that I will pray. And so the sovereignty of God and, and my volition... You thought, you thought it was a good idea, and that's why you did it. And yes, it was a, and it they're was all a, working a together. It's not like one's operating and the other... When, when one's operating and the other's not, and when that one's operating and the other's not, God's sovereignty is working with my volition. It's not unlike the inspiration of Scripture. Right. Where you have Paul, he's cold in his cell in Rome, and he's writing his last thoughts because Nero's about to put him to death. And so he writes to Timothy, oh, bring my cloak. Come on, I'm lonely. Come on. Demas has abandoned me. And he gives all that great thing. It's a human letter. It's such a human letter, and it's the Word of God. So the Bible would teach us to believe that God is sovereign at all times over all things. And in the midst of that, Together with that, we are real people making real decisions. They really matter. God has ordained them, but we do them, and Jesus is the test case. Uh, now, is God the author of sin? Well, first of all, the Bible declares that he is not. Uh, James says that manifestly, and God is not able to tempt us. Uh, clearly, there is sin. There is evil, and God has decreed all things. God has therefore decreed sin and evil for his good and holy purposes. God accomplishes his holy will even through the sinful acts of men. But God is never the agent of them. Uh, I've been reading Jeremiah in my devotions, and God says, I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar down to punish you. I'm going to whistle, and Nebuchadnezzar's going to come down and burn Jerusalem. And then 20 chapters later, he punishes Nebuchadnezzar for doing that because it was evil. And, in, and there's mystery. If we, if we think we're going to deal with this in a nice, tidy way and go, oh, all the mystery's gone, we are deceiving ourselves about our attributes. We do not have the attributes of deity. And so the scriptures will teach us manifestly that God is holy in all that he does. Now, this connects with my suffering. God's purposes are always good and holy. 
in my suffering. That doesn't keep me from weeping and struggling and crying out and suffering, but what an aid it is in my contentment to know the attributes of God. I don't know how it's working in my life. I know who he is. Um, and so, um, no, we are, we're the farthest things from fatalists. Actually, what we have, because of the God of, because he's a God of grace. Because the purpose for which this age of the world exists, according to Jesus, is for the spread of the gospel to all nations so that people will be gathered in great multitude. That is the declared purpose of this age. Why would I be fatalistic about that? It's a thrill. You mean I get to preach and by grace alone, people are going to be converted and even it's all of God. It's all to his glory. I contribute nothing meritoriously to it and yet I'm involved in it. It's thrilling. It's not fatalism. Thank God he's sovereign. Uh, Thibiti, how about this? Let's go to the uh, broader topic of contentment. Hey, you remember our rule. What's that? All the tough questions go to Rick. <laughs> so, so the best part about your last question was, Rick, this is for you. <laughs> yeah, sure. just, wanna, just, just keep that in mind. <laughs> I think this is an easier one. All right, we'll all right, all right. Uh, now, yeah, if, so I, if I whiff on this, I'm not really looking bad. <laughs> <laughs> if you pass it back to Rick, we're in trouble, huh? Um, a lot of people ask this question, maybe four or five wrote in with this, something like, can contentment and the pursuit of excellence coexist, or how does one reconcile godly contentment with ambition? <laughs> Somebody liked that one. You see the hand. Yeah. I think we're exhorted to both in the scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, so with regard to godly ambition, um, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, right? So our, our, every, our every act, in as far as we can as creatures, is, is quorum deo, is before the face of the Lord, is, is soli deo gloria, is for the glory of God alone. Inherent in that is an ambition for excellence, ought to be, right? So if we are you know, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. We, we, we're doing that for the glory of God. Um, and and that, that should imply a holy ambition. And it should imply, as we were saying last night, a kind of holy discontent, right? Um, wherein we see our, our limitations, we see our weaknesses, we see our corruptions, we grieve over them. We're not satisfied with them. We're not, we're not happy in those things. Um, and yet, and yet, at the same time, we rest in Christ. Christ is all. You know, he, he has become wisdom from God for us. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. He's our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Hebrews, he's our rest. Christ is all. And so if there's some sense in which we see our limitations, the ambition feels a discontent, and that folds back into uh, a, a kind of negative self-judgment. That folds back into a perfectionism. That rolls back into our life in a kind of discarding of self. It means then in, in, in our ambition, we've taken our eye off Christ. Right. right? So those two things are to, um, in, a, in, a, in a paradoxical way, belong together. Because contentment at bottom is not complacency. Not laziness. It, it's not complacency. It's not laziness. It's not the absence of drive or desire. It, it is this repose. It's this rest. It's this satisfaction 
in God, which, which awakens desires. It awakens zeal. It, it awakens energy, all of which are, are sort of driving worship. And in our worship, we bring our best offerings. Uh, that's our desire. Um, and so there's an ambition that grows out of it. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Well, we don't, we don't want to bring half-hearted offerings. Right. We don't want to bring um, rotten fruit. Yeah. We want to bring the best of our harvest yeah. in our yeah. worship of God. Isn't one of the divides, uh, whether it's something you can change or not, certain circumstances you can't change, uh, but circumstances that you can change for the better, we, we always should for the Lord's glory, right? Yeah. And, and not just circumstances. So sometimes that's, that issue of whether I can change it or not is, is driven circumstantially. Where I think the question has sharper teeth is, is when it's a matter of our own disposition, yeah. our own heart, our own willingness or desire. If we notice coldness in our heart and we go, well, I'm supposed to be content. Well, that is something you can do something about. That's something mm -hmm. you should be praying about. That's something mm -hmm. you should be radical about. That, that, that's something you want to stoke and remove. Um, and so that, that is, there is a dividing line between things we can change and things that we can't. Some of those things are, that line occurs in things external to us. That line exists in us as well. And, and I think we want to be ruthlessly honest with our soul before the Lord mm -hmm. um, so that we might, we might keep stoking those embers into a flame. That's good. It matters too if it's our excellence is for our righteousness or if it's a thank offering to God. Yeah. And there's a lot of us. Uh, I spent much of my life, I was trained for achievement. And as a non-Christian, I couldn't accept anything other than achievement and excellence because my whole identity and righteousness was bound up in that. And that is something that many Christians deal with. And so our achievement is not what makes us feel acceptable in God's sight. Christ is our acceptable, uh, our righteousness before him. But it matters whether it's a thank offering and if it's zeal for good and holy things. And in that case, let's be ambitious, let's be zealous, but never as our righteousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or as an idol. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, what about um, discontentment with something that maybe should change, um, or rather contentment with something that should change? Say, for instance, someone is in a church with... Um, sin in the leadership, um, should, should the message for them be, be content? Should it always be, be content? The Bible's teaching to be contentment is not a power play to control people, although it may be used that way. Now, every one of you is in a church with sin issues in your leadership. <laughs> and so part of it is, where is my responsibility before the Lord? If I am an elder in the church, and I'm seeing things that make me wonder about the minister, I have an obligation and a right to go to him. But uh, not everybody in the church can go call the pastor and schedule a meeting if they see something. You know, I have some people in my church that I have them on the six-month rule. They can only criticize me once every six months <laughs> uh, because it's not good for them. And it ain't good for me either. I mean, if everybody in my church criticized me that much, I'd be depressed. And so, and, and they're not really in a position. Now, if there are flagrant sins, they have a right to go to the elders and say, why are you not? That's why we have these offices in the church. And the, notice how, you know, uh, uh, elders in the church are not to be accused even. The standard of accusation 
is higher. What's the standard of, of, of conviction to witnesses for others is the standard of accusation for them because they have to be protected from Satan's assault upon them. So let's respect all that. But, uh, you know, if you're a family, if you're a father, now you have an obligation not necessarily to control the church and to dictate to it, but if, you're in a, if your family's in a church with untrustworthy leadership, and particularly where the word is not soundly taught, why are you in that church? And now, there are maybe answers to that, and there's a process to that. So the question is, where, as I'm dealing with this, in what place am I dealing with it? Uh, I never mind people asking questions, honest questions, and we, a minister should be as transparent as possible and willing to, to give biblical explanations for things, but um, I think that at least will be very helpful to people. Uh, generally speaking, you're not going to change your pastor. I'm telling you, uh, if you go to me and say, Rick, I'd like you to preach 15-minute sermonettes, it ain't happening. Uh, we like this. We have biblical convictions that we're operating, and we have those convictions. They're well-formed. And, and, and there are people who might do better in a different church than mine. Uh, uh, so if it's that kind of thing, but really if you have the elders of the church, now there's a... a now there's a duty to be more uh, involved on a substantial level, and you should represent those things to the congregation. When there's a failing in these things, it's a mess. I'll say this. When you're a senior minister of a church, you have an obligation to lead a holy life because there is no good scenario. Because you've built bonds of trust and love, and you've held their mother's hands while they were dying, and they're loyal to you. And God's used them to feed you, to feed them the word. And they're, they're, it's designed to have a pastoral affection. And when we fall into gross sin, it is devastating. And so what a calling there is to men in our position to lead uh, seriously holy lives. Mm. Anything on that, BT? Well, I, mostly just to endorse... Um, most everything Rick said there. Um, I do think, if I, if I understand the question correctly, they're asking about this issue of contentment when they're observing sin in the life of the leadership. Um, that's an important question. And, and again, I think what we want to do is draw a distinction between complacency and, con and contentment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to be aware of the fact that there are, in my opinion, at least lots of Christians who um, continue to participate um, in churches where leaders have um, committed known they disqualifying sin. They should not yeah. do that. should never do yes. that. Yeah. You should Absolutely. never do that. Um, that, that, that is, that would, that, yeah, you should never do that. And to Ever. say you have to be content is a power play to, it's spiritual tyranny is what that is when that's well, taking place. If that's coming from the leader, and I think we ought to be concerned about the members too who try to rationalize yeah. their way through their disappointments yeah. and their mm -hmm. hurts mm -hmm. by appealing to uh, wrong understandings of grace mm -hmm. and forgiveness yeah. uh, and other good virtues. Mm -hmm. So Titus 2, grace, that grace has appeared that brings salvation to all men. That grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly yeah. passions and live sober and upright lives in this present wicked age. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say to the person, if, they, if they're a member of the church, I agree with all that Rick has said, particularly you, you're, you're not called to change that church if you're not in the leadership. So I, I wouldn't have high expectations yeah. about changing the church. I, I, I might encourage a brotherly affection and responsibility for... Um, addressing that issue with the leadership 
as you see it. I think it would be important to distinguish between the kinds of corruptions that we all have. Your pastors are, are, are men, right? They, they are not perfect. I love 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. There's so much grace in that. Um, it's a reminder that the, the pastor is not perfect, but he ought to be growing, and it ought to be visible, right? And so there's a real distinction between seeing growth in your minister, even through some corruptions, even through some sins, and seeing uh, unrepentant, rebellious, um, gospel-denying, uh, atrocious kinds of transgressions that are, that are disqualifying. Yeah. At some um, point, it's not a true church. That's exactly and right. And we're not called to stay to churches that are not true churches. That's the, exactly the, right. the Reformers had three marks of the true church, uh, mm -hmm. preaching of the word, sacraments, and discipline. That's right. And if one of those is missing, then... I think you're free to be discontent. And, and, and it's, it's just so important what church you go to. And when you're placing yourself under spiritual authority, and particularly when you're the head, I want to talk to the fathers and single mothers and whoever's in covenant headship of that home, you have a duty to place your family and yourself mm -hmm. under faithful spiritual leadership. And when there's flagrant false teaching and, 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 and gross sin in the leadership, you should not be in that church. Ian Murray said something once that um, has stuck with me uh, for a number of years now, yeah. and um, I, I think it—I I think it's—it's it's appropriate. I, I hope it is. He um, says the churches that are uh, least demanding are the churches that are most in demand. That's a kind of complacency, not contentment, mm -hmm. and and that's a lowering of the bar that ultimately unravels the church, mm. right? So um, I think we exist in an evangelical day where the bar of pastoral leadership is so low that very little can be expected of the people. The example is set so low that the people actually have very little to trace their lives over in far too many churches. We, we ought not be content with that. Um, and, and we ought not subscribe and support and submit um, to that. Um, there's a godly way to be demanding of leadership, and that's to encourage them, that's to pray for them, that's to give them um, feedback on their sermons beyond just good word today, but this helped me, or I don't understand that. There's a godly way to apply upward pressure, but, but at the, in the final analysis, if the leadership is is corrupt and disqualified. You, you really should be elsewhere. Uh, Thibiti, let's stay with you on this one. Uh, it's related to your talk on possessions. Um, does Acts 2 and Acts 4, the descriptions of the church there and their giving and sharing, does that imply some sort of communal living, um, required sharing, socialism, communism? <laughs> I, 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 I assume that's where you were going. Uh, assume that's where you were going. Oh, let me let me let me make some people discontent. <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably as much biblical basis for communal living as capitalist living. I, I think I think the scriptures would say, multiply the gifts that God has given you, but would say there's a communal purpose for doing so. No, I don't believe it's teaching 
communism or socialism or, or any other ism other than um, the, the sort of familial reality of the local church. That in the same way that it would be a, 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 an abdication of, of duty and responsibility for a father to cash his paycheck and gamble it away and not pay the light bill and not bring home milk. It's an abdication of love and duty and responsibility for people who have been blessed of God with possessions not to actively prayerfully consider how to use part of what God has blessed them with for the blessing of the church family. We would think that's um, part of the Eighth Commandment. The positive duty tied into thou shalt not steal is thou shalt, in fact, use what you're given right. for broader well-being. Now, the problem is in Acts 5, Peter makes clear that Ananias and Sapphira did have the right to dispose of it. So the problem with socialism is they do away with property rights, and yeah. the Bible establishes property rights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so, and so Acts 2 and 4 is not contradicting Acts 5. And, 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 and the, the, the thing about Acts 5 is it is really clear in the interaction with Ananias and Sapphira that these offerings were free will offerings. Yeah, fully voluntary. They, they lied to God, right? right? That's the issue at stake. In the sharing right. in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is described, it's not commanded. That's exactly There's no right. command listed yeah. there, it's just that they gave, they, yeah. they shared. Well, except that you get commands in other places, yeah. right? So First John, let us not love in word only, but let us love in word and deed. If, if you see your brother and he's without a shirt, so on and so forth, and you don't, you don't give, you, you sinned against your brother. Yeah. It's a love issue. Um, and I think the, 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 the sticky part here, uh, as, as good American capitalists, is we, we, we can run the risk of wanting to guard that value at the expense of the greater value, the greatest virtue, which is love, right? And so those things shouldn't be made to be enemies. Mm. Yeah, own what God gives you, mm. but use it to love. You know, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love, Galatians 5. What are the problems in the political tug of war between <coughs> capitalism excuse me, on the one hand and socialism on the other is that many Christians responding against the socialism fail to realize that we're our brother's keepers. Yeah. And uh, if you ever find yourself as a Christian because you have been given stewardship over your resources saying, why, should, why do I care if they're cold or hungry? You are not reflecting the mind of Christ. That's right. And so... Uh, it's really, this part of the problem, Christians don't have a political landing place that well today. We don't. Because uh, uh, it's frustrating to hear people who in many respects are defending biblical ideas, the, the life of the unborn and those sorts of things, imbibing economic principles that were not that biblical. Yes, they respect private property, <clears throat> but a covenantal outlook, and an outlook that says it's a stewardship uh, unto God is something that Christians cannot give up. Now, there's a, there's a whole responsibility for that. Do you give money to a beggar? Maybe you shouldn't. There's a context for that. But, but what we can't do is wash our hands of it, of the poor, the broken, and the needing, and the disenfranchised around us. We are par I'm, I'm an American. I don't mind being taxed. Uh, I mind my taxes being used to hurt people. I, I, I mean, I have a, an opinion on that. But the idea that I would be taxed because I'm part of a society so that the, the people who are needy would be helped. In principle, I embrace that. Mm -hmm. Now, the details of it may, may be another matter. Mm -hmm. 
what about seeing needs around us and trying to meet those needs? We're, we know we're to give generously. We can't possibly give generously to every single need that's presented before us. Uh, can we? That's not implied in, in any of this. Rick? Well, two things. One is uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is very valuable. And we want to be careful we're on the right side of that. But it's hard today. Um, if you give money to a beggar, you may be harming him. But, of course, that's not just what he does in that parable. He gets covenantally involved with him. And I do think that the Christian community, here's where I think parachurch ministries can really help us. Um, we have a ministry in the upcountry of South Carolina called Miracle Hill that's an interdenominational ministry to the poor and to the... Uh, the substance abuse. And if you're going to deal with the poor in our cities, you need to work at it. I mean, you, you, you can't dabble in that. And so we financially support and we partner, our deacons partner in a variety of ways with that ministry. And we try to be more and more involved with the soup kitchen. And so the Christian community on an interconnected church basis is organizing proactively to deal with those things. But the church itself, its mission, I do believe in the spirituality of the church. Our mission is the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of souls. But the Christians are mobilized in the broader community in, you know, uh, I, I got an email today inviting me to the uh, crisis, uh, 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 the Women's Center, the Christian, the Piedmont Women's Center, the Christian thing, we're fundraising to try and minister to women who otherwise would be doing abortions. Christians need to be doing that. So we need to have a plan. We're aggressively doing that. And I do think a lot of times what we're really doing is we're just trying to assuage our consciences. Uh, our church, we're downtown, and we have the affluent part of the town on that side and the poor part on that side, and we're pretty close to that boundary. So we'll have indigents come to us. And for many years, the church was actually known as an easy mark because they just kind of gave money when people asked for it. And I actually put a stop to that. And working with the deacons and the elders, uh, we're not responsibly interacting with them when we just give them a gift card, uh, but we are more involved with those Christians who've vocationally given themselves to that. And I think that those kinds of Christian partnerships are becoming very important, and I think that's the way to go. Mm. Have you any thoughts on that, how to decide what needs to try to meet when you, know, you could hear of uh, news in this part of the country or uh, in the other, other side of the world? How do you decide? Well, I do think proximity has some bearing on it. Okay. Uh, so the responsibility I have for... Um, the, the, the neighbor, literally, a block down the road, is different than the responsibility I have for the person in Zambia. Right. You know? um, and so I think proximity has some bearing on it. I think wisdom, and the way Rick is catching it out, it's important. Uh, you, you don't want your helping to hurt. And, and in fact, that's a good book to read if you haven't, uh, When Helping Hurts. Yeah. Um, so you actually want it to be the delivery of help um, and not something that inadvertently gets... Um, sort of turned into um, more hurt for the person you're caring for. Um, and then I think we want to have a, a, a disposition to be merciful mm -hmm. and to be generous. I think that's clearly taught in the scripture. Um, and I think there's a priority that's taught in the scripture. First to the household of God. Do good to all men, especially the household of God. Um, and, and so our, our generosity in that sense even, it isn't as diffuse as I need to help everything I come into contact with. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, there's an ordering, I think, that the scripture gives us there. 
Um, and, and I think we need to be leaning toward mercy and generosity and compassion um, rather than reeling from it. Um, and, and in my experience, at least in these conversations, I, I feel like Christians are leaning back away from generosity, finding reasons to, to not give rather than saying, why not rather be defrauded? Mm-hmm. Not, not, I'm not going to be unwise about yeah. it, but in the end of the day, having been as wise as I could, if somebody took advantage of me, why not rather be defrauded in the hope of actually doing positive good uh, where I can? And, and, and it, you know, the, the things that come into our lives are stewardships from the Lord. Yeah. So the brokenness and the hurting, that's where the ministry happens. Mm. Um, and, and we want to sort of stick our heads in there mm. in a responsible way um, and, and risk, risk being defrauded from time to time. I think there's also a top-down and a bottom-up thing going on. If you're in Albuquerque and you have a lot of poor people and the churches aren't doing anything, probably the executive ministers need to be getting together and developing a plan for, for crisis pregnancy centers and for, when I was in Philadelphia, it was AIDS, Mercy Ministries, and Well. So you have a top-down strategic assessment that's taking place among the churches. But you'll also have the Lord move individual people. The federal prosecutor in Greenville is a member of our church, and he puts them in the pokey. And he has a burden for their soul. And so he started uh, evangelizing, getting, he has connections at the prison. We have a pretty serious prison 30 minutes from our city. And so he started doing that. And because of the Lord's work in his life, a ministry grew up in our church. And so, yeah, we have to be responsibly. And I, I, proximity is a very good point. You got to look, look, look around us. And then we need to be working with other Christians. But then... In a healthy church where the Holy Spirit's working with the Word, you're going to have things rising up, and often the, the eldership will then come alongside and facilitate that kind of thing. Uh, so it's a sign of the life of the Word when the people of God are, have the love of Christ overflowing their lives to others. Uh, hey, question, what's a pokey? It's fish. <laughs> it's the it's the penitentiary. It's the penitentiary. <laughs> I was trying to think of an ebonic word for uh, it. It's not pokey. It's not pokey. You can't do that. Rick. Not pokey. Yeah, I see you there. <laughs> All right, taking the reins back. Here. Uh, this was related to to contentment and uh, to giving. I think. Uh, talk about the the difficult tension that exists between, on the one hand, allowing differences of opinion on convictions of what to use and what to leave, uh, where to draw the line, how much is too much to have, uh, how much should we give. Uh, So different convictions on that. And on the other hand, the need to talk about specifics so that we can exhort each other and encourage each other and even at times um, question each other. Is that making sense? Uh, we won't all agree how much should we give and how much stuff is too much stuff. Therefore, should we not talk about Therefore, it? Therefore, we never talk about it. Talk about that. <laughs> okay, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm going to answer it my way and hope it connects with it. <laughs> our churches are not giving enough. Yeah. It's the truth. We're not asking our people to give enough because what we tend to want is to have a nice church where we have good stuff going on. We, have, we can afford a youth minister and a good worship leader and we've got stuff going on here and all of those are good things, but we are called to more than that. And uh, our missions giving collectively should be a lot higher than it is. It should be a lot higher. 
And uh, the leadership of the church should have a keen zeal for the kingdom of Christ. Some of that's going to be local evangelism. Some of it's going to be the mercy of Christ going out. Some of it's going to be world missions. Some of it's going to be, you know, having a website that has the ability to, so people can hear your audio products and being zealously working. We need to be doing more for that. And I think the leaders of the church need to set forth a vision, not only for what kind of church we are, but how our church can play a bigger and bigger role in the great kingdom work of the Lord Jesus. When my first year at my church in South Carolina, I challenged the elders. I did not think they were giving enough. And I, I set the rule, I didn't set it, but I encouraged the rule, that if we can meet our budget without special need for prayer, we're not, we're not aspiring to enough. And I think we have, and we had a surplus, we raised our budget 29% my first year and had a surplus. Um, and that's because, and this, and this is a really, it was a good church I went to, but we weren't, we're not tapping the giving potential of our church hmm. in most cases. We wait till we need a building and we're storing it up so we can, and, and, and uh, I'm not opposed to buildings. So I think that in general, it's a symptom of our need to be much more connected to the worldwide church. You know, the purpose for this age is the extent of the gospel to all nations. That's why Christ hasn't come back yet, because all the elect have not been gathered in. That's what we're here to be doing. And uh, I think that in good churches, where the Spirit's working through the Word, when we set forward a vision of these things, I people think people will respond in giving. And so I think rather than why aren't you giving more, we want to talk about the good things we can do. You know, 20000 bucks in Peru can get a lot done. And we ought to have a vision. We need, the more connected we are, we have material wealth. And we're just not connected to places where it can have great strategic value. And I think that would change it a lot. Mm. I think that's a really helpful big picture or uh, top-down leadership perspective. Thabiti, yeah. yeah. speak like you're in a home group or a community group. You lead a, a small group, and, and um, these relationships happen um, among the, the families of this group. Uh, talk about these dynamics in, in a smaller setting like that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, in our young married small group, so we get a young couple that marries. We have a, kind of a two-year track uh, where they're in a small group. We sort of try and disciple them as couples, and one of the areas where we spend a lot of time is on finances. So we read Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Um, and, and there, you asked the question originally in terms of conviction and freedom. Yeah. And there, what, I, what, what we try to press home, what I think Alcorn presses home really quite effectively, is that our, our convictions ought to be biblical, and they, and they kind of circumscribe our freedom. And the most central thing to recognize is that we're stewards, not owners. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So before we can get down into the question of you know, sort of differences that arise out of freedom. I think we have to fundamentally recognize that nothing we own, own, is ours. Mm -hmm. It's all God's. Mm -hmm. What do we have that we first receive? You know, um, and and God has blessed us in this way. And so the question we ask as a steward are different questions that we ask as an owner. Mm -hmm. So as a steward, you ask the question: How does God want me to use this? Right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm stewarding his estate. As an owner, we sort of ask, well, what do I want to do with this? Right? Those are really different questions. And, um, and so what we try and do in, say, a small group setting or in the preaching of church uh, is to try and help people in their discipleship make that shift to seeing themselves as stewards um, and asking a different set of questions. 
uh, really making freedom secondary. It's important, but it's secondary to um, some convictions that should arise out of texts like 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 um, and the things that are, that are spoken of there. Um, and, and so that, that's the shift we try to make. Then, then to sort of burrow down a different level really becomes a question of sort of couple-to-couple -couple discipleship or one-to-one -one discipleship. Um, in our small group, my wife and I lead a, a couples group. Uh, we go through Randy Alcorn, and, and almost invariably, half the room is saying, we need to give more. You know, And we, we're affirming that. And we're saying, okay, well, what does, what does that look like for you? Because uh, this couple over here where the guy is a six-figure uh, mutual fund manager is different from the Filipino couple over here who both of them are domestics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they may give their two mites and be given more than the 15 or 20% this guy is writing a check for and not feeling, mm -hmm. you know? So then that's where the freedom and, or, the, or at least the individual circumstance uh, sort of comes into play more often. About four years ago, I had to, uh, I hate talking about money, or I used to. Uh, and about four years ago, I just had to repent before the congregation. Amen. Amen. I, I had to stand before the congregation and say, you know what? This area of your discipleship, I have not been addressing as effectively as I could. Um, and I was in the middle of a discipleship series, sort of a topical series, where we put this on the table. And I said, you know, in, in an effort to be faithful to you, I will never again shy away from addressing this area of your life and it will be for your blessing to live this area of your life according to God's word. Yeah. Um, it's not just about the money, it's about their it's about the soundness, their spirituality. The, you know, they stand before the Lord. You read the parable of the talents yeah. and they are to be accountable and stewards to him. You know, I never sweat the church budget really. I mean, the Lord's going to work it out. Right. And you know, we make our budget and the, the treasurer calls. We go, oh, pastor, great news, we made the budget. And I, that's his job. I praise the Lord he's doing that. But I go, you know, I would, uh, the Lord said, I knew he was going to take care of it. And if he didn't bring it all in, we'd make an adjustment. I really don't sweat it. But whether or not the people in my church are living unto Jesus and have a vision for the kingdom and have the generosity that's been shown to them working through their lives to others and the realiz realization that they are the recipients of mercy, therefore they want to be the sharers of mercy, that is a huge issue. I was the same way. Yeah. Just you didn't want to talk about money because you don't want them to think you want it's all about their money. Okay, can we get past that and now proclaim? Uh, you know, money is a really – how we handle our money is very close to the soul. Yeah, it really is. I, I, I love the way one pastor put it on Twitter. He says, um, God asks you to give, not to get money out of your pocket, but to get idols out of your heart. Mm. Uh, that's, that's exactly good. right. And there are two areas in which our people in, in every church – are awash in the world every day. One is going to be their finances. The other is going to be sexuality. Mm. Right? Yeah. So every yeah. Sunday, our people are coming into the services having swam yeah. through the dirty waters of this world's messages mm. about money and possessions and, and about sexuality. Mm. And, and we just have to get the hose, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, of, of God's word and just, you know... Yeah. Um, we all need that bath. We all need yeah. to be washed by the water of the word. And, and these are two areas where it's really close to the soul. Yeah. And, and we, we can't shy back if we're going to be faithful. On Sunday, a, a brother came up to me. I appreciate I'm grumbling. And, uh, I think I mentioned Hebrews 13, be content with what you have, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he said, do you remember what came, comes before that in the passage? Mm -hmm. The marital bed right. and money. That's right. And then be content with what you have. That's right. 
so right. it's interesting those two things are yeah. there Hebrews 13 mm. yeah uh, well we've already talked about that you, you you guys are ahead of me you're almost uh, guessing the next question um, let's, let's go to this if the BTU talked about heaven uh, last this, night this doesn't sound like an easy question no <laughs> <laughs> It's a give us more. Uh, <laughs> so give us more about Edward's vision for heaven's ever-increasing joy. Mm. Can you just unpack that a little bit more? Anything more you want to say on that? I, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing from Sam Storms, who I, I hope I mentioned last night. If you want to see this, this was at a Desiring God conference. You go to Desiring God blog. They had a conference one year on heaven, I think, or it may have been on Edward's and so Stan, Sam Storms did the... the it's also in his One Thing book. And there's One Thing. A chapter in there. Um, and, and Edwards meditating on heaven um, and, and Edwards reasoning as he does. I'm going I'm to give you the cliff notes, you know, uh, the dummy version, you know, Ed, Edwards for idiots. Um, I mean, he basically, he basically meditated on the notion of the infiniteness of God. And, and how heaven would be a world that in some ways is filled with that, that infinity. And that our transformation, our, our glorification, was going to include a, a, a capacity to absorb something of that infinity in increasing measure. And, and so it's... it's um, Heaven will not be like visiting the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. I remember going to Canada the first time and, and, and folks were, you know, first time in Canada, oh, you got to get to the falls, you got to get to the falls. So I've heard all these things about these mighty rushing waters, let's go to the falls. Get my family after the conference that day, we're kind of tired, we drive to the falls, we go, we get on a little perch where you can look out onto the water and I, I think it was probably one of my daughters who at the time would have been about 10, they were like, is this it? <laughs> You know, or, I, we were, we were to, blown away by the Niagara Falls. It was awesome. If, if, if you've seen Victoria, you're not so impressed with Niagara. Mm. You should have been on the go, American side. Or to go, well, hey, they, they, they said, oh, were you on the right side? Said, Please. <laughs> so, <laughs> heaven won't be like going to Grand Canyon. Yeah. yeah. Even Would if it's you, impressive at first, it's not going to keep going up. Every that's day. That's, that's, so that's exactly right. So you see the canyon and you're awed at the canyon. You feel small. And yet, after a few minutes, you know, you, you kind of, okay, I'm no longer awed. But that heaven won't be like that. There'll be this increasing, eternally increasing awe. We're not going to get tired of feasting upon the, the wonders of God. And we're going to have, according to Edwards at least, and I, I think there's grounds for this, we're, we're going to have a capacity Amen. to continue to be awed. Um, that's what we were made for. Um, and so one of the, one of the deceptions of, of contentment in this life is that we can be contented for a while and grow bored. That's never going to happen in glory. We, we, we will be contented and excited and expanding in that contentment. And Storms does this little run where he hits all these synonyms for expanding. He must have had about 50. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, you're just like, oh, I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go. Yeah. So that, that's the best I can do on that. That's, that's good. So it's, I, I think either Edwards or, or Storms or both, 
say basically that this is an exponential growth, right? The longing, the fulfillment, the awe is not a steady plane on a graph. Yeah. It's exponential in its growth. Yeah. Well, who can imagine what it'll be like yeah. 10,000 years exactly uh, or more? Into We've it. only just begun. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. We should write a song like that. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> 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 the moderator's getting a little cheeky, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might have missed last year when I made fun of Paul Tripp's mustache. Oh, yeah. Well, you got a lot of material there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take the reins back again. I was say, <laughs> take the reins back. Uh, Rick, talk to us about the role of the word in wrestling with contentment, fighting for contentment. Um, how important is it? How, how, do we, how do we go about using the word of God in, in personal Bible reading, family reading, um, to actually get to this thing of wrestling with contentment and not just it being duty or, or information? Oh, yeah. Well, I, go back to what I said last night about the, the relationship between deceitfulness and deception and the we, we live in a in a world where sin is operating in a clandestine way and in a clever, deceitful way. We have spiritual enemies. Our flesh is prone to folly. And so we need to have a wisdom about the peril that we are in and the corrective that is in the Word of God. I have people say to me, I mean, haven't you read the Bible enough? Well, see, it's not just that I... The answer is no. Even in, even in terms of acquiring information, I mean, you've read, you, know, re, you read the Gospel of Matthew for the 42nd time and you go, I just completely missed this until today. Sometimes the Lord knows when to disclose something to you. But even if it were true that I had gotten the information out of it, it's a different thing. It's, it's, a, it's a covenantal meeting. It's, it's God speaking to me in the present. And so I need to be connected to the life of God that comes through the word of God, like the water falling down from the sky and making things grow and life to come. And so I am enlivened by the word of God and I'm protected from deception. And that, that's a big part of it. A lot of our contentment, our discontentment, is just bogus. Uh, our priorities are just outrageously wrong and we're being self-pitying. And, and the Bible will correct it. Usually when you see someone who's really gone off the deep end in a discontented way that's led to serious sin, they stop coming to church regularly. Or it's interesting, you see that they come to church, but they're never sitting under the Word. They're always serving somewhere on the periphery. And you'll see that tendency. So for that part of, uh, of contentment that's folly and deception... Uh, we really are like Asaph in Psalm 73. Then I entered the house of the Lord and I remembered. And we come to church and we need to be in the church service. We need to have the Bibles open. We need uh, uh, Bible memory work to be forming conversation in our families. And so the, the, the Bible is leading us by the high hand actively. That's part of it. The other part of discontentment, that's, that's because I'm suffering. It's not that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm foolish and I'm deceived but I'm actually involved in suffering. We need the grace of God. We need his light to shine upon us. We need, I'm going to say you need the Psalms if you're suffering uh, because the Psalms will take you by the hand and, and the things that your heart is trying to say you will find on the tongue of the psalmist. Uh, and those who are struggling with contentment because of suffering should, you know, I'll take up a psalm and just pray through it. And we should be, we should be walking down that road 
And God meets with us in his word. I need to hear from the God of grace. And I hear from him in his word. And the word will give me wisdom and will give me power and will give me life. And, and in the desert of my discontented life, uh, flowers will start to grow. And that will be to the glory of God. And the means, the principal means by which all of those things happen are the word of God. And so uh, I've been frustrated re recently by people in the interest of avoiding legalism as saying, oh, you'd stop telling people they have to be in their Bibles all the time. Okay, Bible reading does not justify you. And it's not a talisman. But we are living in a desert. And this is called the water of life. And the man who delights in the word and meditates it is like a tree planted by streams of water. We need to be living with the word and thinking about the word. And, and our churches need to be bringing the word to bear in all kinds of ways. Um, we so greatly need the word of God. His life comes to us through the truth of the word. Mm. Anything more on that, Thabiti? Yeah, completely agree. Um, I'll take sort of two nuggets from what he said and, and your question and, and just use it as a way of saying here, here. I find that I have to actively remember that when I'm reading God's word, he's speaking to me. His covenant meeting is really taking place. And not only do I have to remind myself actively that he's speaking to me and that the word gives life and it refreshes and so on, but where my, con my, my contentment is concerned, if contentment is soul deep satisfaction, then I'm reading the word primarily for my own happiness. Not just duty, not just to prepare a sermon, not just as you were saying to gather facts, but, but boy, add the category of joy to Bible reading and read it for your joy. Read it for your happiness. Read it for your soul's delight. You mentioned the Psalms. Oh, when the Psalmist, Psalm 119? Oh, this, is, this is like gold purified seven times. This, right. is, this is honey. This is sweet. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bible has lips. You open it. It speaks to you. <laughs> you know, this is... Not that this way. This is though. extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is, but you got to get it open. You know, this is this is extraordinary. I, it, it really, it really is. And I, and I, I my, because my heart and my mind are so often dull, I have to prepare before I read this with the reminder to self: Your Lord is about to speak, and He's going to tell you about joy. Come drink. Come eat. And so um, my, my contentment, even in Bible reading, because I can be discontent at Bible reading. The honey, the honey's in a rock sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And so you gotta chisel the rock. You gotta break through the rock to get to the honey. And I can I can be a little hurried or busy or discontented. I, I just the beady has to stop and remind himself actively. You're about to hear the sweetest voice. In existence. Listen. The relational dynamic to Bible reading. Mm -hmm. You know, mentally I try to picture Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, wanting him to teach her, or the gathering demoniac who mm. was uh, cleansed and clothed and sitting at his feet and in his right mind. 
I open the Bible and I'm sitting at Jesus' feet and, 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 the, and his Holy Spirit is teaching me. I think if we don't, the intentionality is a good part of it. I'll say this too. Most of us need to open our Bibles before we go to the internet. Amen. You go to the internet first, you never get into the Bible because the flesh loves it. Or email. Yeah, or, or the, you know, oh, the Malaysian plane. Wow, and 45 minutes have gone by. And, and, and worse than that, we just start imbibing of the world. The world sets our agenda for the day. We need to be wise and disciplined about our lives and say, I'm going to start, I'm going to first allow the word of God to come into me and fortify me, and then I'm going to go to the world. And if we're not a little disciplined about it, uh, we can get into trouble. What, what, what I love about what Rick has said in, in the fuller answer to your question is, is he's, he's really talking about the old paths, isn't he? Hmm. The yeah. ordinary means of grace. Amen. The old paths. Uh, yeah. Many of us read the Puritans. More of us need to be Puritans. I, you, you know, Puritanism, I heard it described as kind of a, a holiness movement in an ecclesial context. Yeah. Um, and, and boy, we need that. And we need the warmth of, of Puritan piety. We need the, we need the joy <laughs> Of it, um, yeah, man, boy, I, that's good. Yeah. Mm. That's helpful. Mm. Um, why don't we do this? One more kind of question or questions. Um, what encouraging trends do you see in the American church today? Um, and then what needs do you see or problems do you see on the horizon for both the American church and the global church? Those are big questions, but maybe just pick, you know, a couple of, of key things. Thabiti, encouraging trends in the evangelical American church today? It, it's amazing how sometimes one word will di- expose your discontent, right? Like he added encouraging trends. Like, oh, no, I was thinking about the bad things. Because it was a lot. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exposed again. Um, <laughs> but there is a lot to be encouraged by. Uh, I, I'm encouraged by the, the increasing centrality of the gospel um, in the ministry of many men in churches. I'm encouraged by um, the increasing reliance and embrace of the sufficiency of scripture uh, in, in some quarters, um, particularly as it relates to how we do church and, and, the, and the sort of various methods of the church. I'm encouraged with the church planting movements mm-hmm. and networks that are, seem to be just proliferating um, uh, around I'm encouraged by the revival of reform theology uh, in particular, um, not as a slight or, or a lack of appreciation for people who see themselves in other camps, but um, I just think the revival of deep, robust, big God, sovereign God, um, infinite grace um, is, is a wonderful thing for our times. I think we're witnessing a revival of sorts. Um, I, I'm encouraged by the, the use of um, social media, internet technologies. There's some bad to that that can happen, but I think there's a lot of good happening through that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, with the click of a mouse, can listen to Lloyd-Jones, and um, with the click you know, on another page, we can read just good stuff that people are writing on blogs, and we can feed our soul in, in more ways than the saints of old could ever have imagined. Mm-hmm. Again, there's a, there's a dark side to that. I'm, I'm not advocating podcast um, pastors. I'm not advocating um, the kind of celebrityism that, that goes on. Um, but we live in a day of riches, um, and, and that's encouraging. And uh, I'm encouraged by the, the multi-ethnic um, emphasis that's grown in the church world. 
the, the, the sense that the gospel ought to change and rightly order our relationships across ethnic lines. Uh, that's huge. That's huge. That's unthinkable 50 mm. years ago. Mm. It's unthinkable in our lifetime. Mm. You know, and so that God has done that in short, sh such short compass is amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by the growth of the church around the world um, and, and the strength of it in, in many places. It has its challenges, but uh, there's strength in places that if we're not careful, we would quickly think are weak because they're persecuted or poor or some other thing, mm -hmm. um, but would put to shame the American church um, in its worship and its dedication and so on. Uh, you asked about the American church. I've started to bleed over to other things. Say a word about the cross conference. You're involved in that. That's oh, got to be enormously encouraging. I'm very encouraged with the emphasis on uh, unengaged, unreached people groups. So the cross conference, I've had the privilege of joining together with a number of men, John Piper, um, David Platt, Kevin DeYoung, um, some other brothers, forgive me for blanking on the names, uh, to organize a student missions conference. It was great to have your missions pastor uh, come along this past December. Uh, we'll meet every other year, Lord willing. And, and the aim is to try and encourage a generation of college students. And, and much of American missions has been fueled by movements of the spirit among college students. To encourage a generation of college students to invest their lives in ending what we call this situation of unreached, unengaged people groups, which are people groups who um, un unreached would have less than 2% of their population um, described as evangelical Christians. No, no visible church, discernible church there that carry on the gospel work. Unengaged are people groups who not only don't have that, but they don't have any missions, agency, church, or what have you um, dedicated to reaching them with the gospel. So over 3,000 such people groups. Uh, in the world. And so uh, we want to see the task finished. Uh, if the Lord would be pleased to do it in our generation and to, to send us to go uh, to reach us. But I'm really encouraged by this kind of missions fervor mm -hmm. um, that's rising up in the church as well. Amen. Yeah. Rick, former tank commander, will let you have the uh, what to shoot at. Uh. <laughs> Things you're discouraged by. Yeah. <laughs> what, what concerns do you see on the horizon for uh, the American evangelical church and what needs are ahead in yeah. our response to the global church? I think one of the biggest issues is how we define success. Well, and one of our biggest issues that we, we have as a group, as the evangelical movement, I think it's very discouraging that uh, we have adopted our society's standards of success. And therefore, instead of the church shaping the culture, the culture has been greatly shaping the church. Um, we define success with the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash, all of which are good things. Uh, if you're a pastor, you're on a plane, they find out you're a pastor, the question you're immediately going to be asked is how many people go to your church, which is not an irrelevant question, but neither is it the most important relevant question. And, and I do think that... Uh, um, we really need, and, and where it's encouraging is where the word of God is breaking in and, we're, and we're, we're breaking out of that success syndrome because you can have those things without the spirit of God. And I, I think I'm generally discouraged by the megachurch movement in America. I thought you put it so adroitly that the least demanding churches are most in demand where there's really there's some really glaring issues of biblical polity and of, of, of the life of the church 
and, and of what worship consists of. I'm very discouraged by the spread of video church and the whole doctrine of the church and of worship where there's not even a living minister there preaching and, and there's just these mass movements that are there. And I just think we're not really being reflective by the word. And so it's kind of American pragmatism just in our generation. It's kind of the version of it. But it's really hindered our usefulness to Christ. Um, and so uh, uh, the spirit of the world is impacting us in ways that often we're not reflecting on them. Uh, and I think that those are real concerns. We need to define the gospel biblically. We need to define our message biblically. We need to define our churches biblically. We need to define our worship biblically. Uh, we need to define our lives biblically. Uh, now, that's always going to be a tension in any society. Uh, but I, I think that we are allowing the devil to give us the definition of success. And uh, look, uh, here, here's the way I put it. Uh, things that are byproducts and that are good as byproducts, we have made the products. Mm. Uh, the purpose of worship is not evangelism. Mm. The purpose of worship is not edification. The purpose of worship is doxology. That God would be praised and that he would be pleased by the worship of his people. Now, who decides that? Well, God does. Where does he tell us? In his word. Now, if you have a God-centered worship, you will get evangelism and edification as byproducts. But when they become the products, you lose the purpose of it. And I think that that tendency uh, is very prevalent in our time. Now, I have to say that within that general trend, uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on. I, honestly, it's an encouragement to me to be here. I'd never heard of Desert Springs Church nor had you heard of mine. And I come here and we're brothers and we're worshiping the Lord and the word's going forth and we've been preaching downhill, not uphill here. And we have not been preaching into disaffected hard hearts. No, there's been a give us the word. I didn't know this was going on here. And no, I'm excited about the Holy Spirit. I'm excited about Jesus and he's the victor and I know that. And so in the midst of some really big concerns about the isms, materialism and sensualism and all of that, you know, we are not a holy church. The evangelical movement is not seeking after holiness. We're seeking after lifestyle. I mean, I, those are just not controversial statements. Um, boy, we'll be more useful to the Lord if we'll really have zeal for that. We need to be pursuing them. But Christ is victor. He's working. You know, honestly, uh, if he was really determined to write us off, he could have done it. He hasn't done it yet. There are mm -hmm. other places. I'm, I'm discouraged about England. I mean, I'm really discouraged about Christianity in Europe. I mean, go, to, go there and you see our brothers laboring in hardship. America is still fundamentally different. God has sovereignly kept his spirit working here. Uh, I'm excited about the reformed resurgence, but I'm afraid we're squandering it because, again, we're defining success in terms of markets, you know, uh, uh, penetration. Um, but, it, you know, Christ is working in all different places. And uh, where we see a focus on the gospel where we see the grand themes that have always accompanied revival, the sovereignty of God, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, the sufficiency of the word of God, where you see those things going, Christ is at work, and that is exciting. Uh, I think we're probably going to see some reshuffling ecclesiologically, that the denominational maps are going to be moving because they don't really match what's going on spiritually, and that's always hard. I kind of dread that as I have to participate in it, but that's okay. Uh, so let's, let's, let's respond to the word, and uh, uh, that is encouraging to me. But I think that there, the, the market-driven, 
Let's do what Madison Avenue and Hollywood tells us to do. Let's call them celebrities. Let's, let's, let's fortify all of that kind of thing. It disgraces the gospel before our culture. Um, and it squanders his investment of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, he cheated. He did well, both, didn't he? He did both. Yeah, he yeah. started talking about encouragements. You know. yeah, sorry. Was, I don't want to be too sneaky. negative. I don't that want you sneaky. to be Mr. Encouragement. That was your job. I was going to be looking good because ah, you were going to be negative. Ah. You know? Oh, Now I'm not happy. I'm not content. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I do I, I, I say a negative thing, um, underlining what you said. I was glad you said it. Um, I do think that many of the things that we celebrate are in danger of being hijacked by the mechanisms of, of sort of a market capitalistic yeah. culture. And I don't think the church is sufficiently distinct from the world to not have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there, there, are, there are well-meaning folks who um, have those engines turning, publishers, different things, um, and they're thinking about the business that they're in. Um, and, and those things, I think, have, have latched on to the church, which is central and primary, and, and, and what we're really trying to build in a way that are weakening the church yeah. and siphoning off um, what should be the concentration of the church. Um, and and that, that I, do, I, I do feel concerned mm-hmm. about. Good. Yeah. Well, we'll end this with Rick praying for some of these things. Um, that Jesus will build his church, that we would be pure and holy mm-hmm. and um, worship him as he calls us to. Let's pray. Our Father, we are encouraged because of your son, the Lord Jesus, as he accomplishes your will. We are so encouraged that at the, on the throne of heaven and earth is our brother, And on his hands are the wounds he bore for our atonement. And as the high priest once bore the stones of the tribes into the holy of holies, our names are engraven on his hands. And he bears us before your throne. And we exult in the victory of Christ. And Father, we pray, therefore, that that would be manifested in our churches. Uh, We pray that we would be satisfied with Jesus and our zeal would be his glory, his gospel, his work of saving sinners. Uh, Father, thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for bearing with me and my failings and my weaknesses. Uh, We thank you that in our weaknesses, that you are at work to display your glory, that the church will prevail, the gospel will go forth. Father, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in distant lands. And we pray that you would enable us to have a greater bond of fellowship with them and that we would be excited and we would would look upon our lives and our age and our world and our church the way that you look upon them and that we would be more and more committed to the work of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd bless all the men, women, and young people who are here tonight or today that you would take things that have been said and whether it was today, whether it'll be tomorrow, whether it will be when the need arises. We pray that the things of your word would be brought to mind and would be pressed upon the heart for grace, that they would be strengthened, that we would be strengthened today by your word and that the effects of what we've done here, that they would resonate even under eternity. We know you'll do it. We're excited to see how your will will unfold. 
So Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the grace that is in Jesus. Lord, would you give us a greater excitement about him and a a zeal for his kingdom. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 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 Would you thank these guys for me? Thank you.